So finally, you know, <clears throat> faster than, than I really wanted to, the day came around when we, when we needed to start. And the Crusades were actually catalyzed by Pope Urban II preaching this message in Clermont-Ferrand on November 27th, 1095. <coughs> so we went to Clermont-Ferrand and we got word out and about 300 people turned up. Um, all the sorts of things that you think that's going to be impossible to organize. When you, I know this time God was so in it that everything fell together again and again. Doesn't mean there wasn't work involved, but it meant that everything we did worked. You know, it it, it achieved the purposes that we we had hoped for. And it was a wonderful sense of, of, of everything just working out like the video I had seen in that day standing in the swimming pool in Argentina. Pretty amazing feeling. So the day came when we gathered in Cologne, Germany, because that's where Peter the Hermit started from. And we, we did some orientation, we did some training of what we were about, and, and making sure that people understood we were there to do an apology, not to evangelize, not to try to change anybody's mind, just to say, we deeply regret the way our forefathers misrepresented Jesus Christ. They turned upside down the meaning of the cross. And if you want, you can, I won't read it out now, but you can read this apology. I've got a few of these booklets that I can bring even tomorrow. But it's, um, every time we did it, it, it just resonated. Partly it was, Matthew did such a good job, and partly it was just a tremendous sense of anointing. And as, you, as I tell the story, you see again and again, the apology just, it was like it was magical. God was in it. So that first day came and we, and we, we decided that what, what we would do is, is walk right around Cologne for the, on, on Easter Sunday. <clears throat> and that, that would be kind of the kickoff. So we were to gather outside the Cathedral of Cologne. If you've ever seen the Cologne Cathedral, it is fantastic. It's just beautiful. And the thing is, the lower rounds of stones, the, the, the layers of stones that were laid for that cathedral were laid just before the crusade started. So those same stones were there. We stood next to the stones that witnessed the Peter the Hermit and the crusaders leaving. And the, and the oddest thing was, <clears throat> we went there and I didn't, we didn't try to get permission because we knew it would just kind of get bureaucratic. So we thought, we'll just It'll be early morning, 6 o'clock on a freezing March morning uh, outside Cologne Cathedral. Nobody's going to bother us. <clears throat> and, and they didn't. But we thought, well, where, sh where shall we meet? You know, where's the best place to meet? And we were just kind of about to start. <clears throat> and somebody said, Lynn, we've got to start over here. You've got to see this. So I went over, and there was a nice little area where people could stand up and, and see the person who was speaking. <clears throat> and, and there was a stone it, it was one of these stone uh, terraces where, where it was all these paving stones about that big. And, and in this stone only, there was inscribed the following statement. This stone marks a spot which could be of great historical significance. What's <laughs> that? A prophecy in stone. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So I stood on that stone 
and people gathered around and we sort of made a few official comments and prayed and off we went. <clears throat> so we began to walk. <coughs> and you know, all the buildup and, and getting ready, you, you anticipate, now we're going to start. And then you start and you're walking down the road. <laughs> hmm, this doesn't feel so significant. <laughs> so what do you do? Well, you pray and you bless the city and you ask, you know, you, you pray and you, and you worship and you pray and, and you worship and then you run out of things to pray about, you know. <laughs> but we arranged, we arranged partway through to stop at a mosque. Now this was nerve-wracking because somebody had gone, I don't even remember who, but somebody who spoke some German, went to a Turkish mosque. And as you may know, there are a lot of Turks, and there have been for a long time, living in, in Germany as guest workers. So there are Turkish mosques. And I, I had asked somebody to go and see if we could stop on this mosque. And the word came back, yes, the imam would be happy to see us. Okay. But as we approached this mosque, I thought, oh man, what's going to happen? If this first encounter goes badly, it's not going to get us off to a good start at all. And, and I began to think, I should have come here yesterday or the day before and talked to the guy and found out what, it, got a protocol together and I'd blown it. And so, you know, 125 of us stood outside the gate of this mosque and rang the bell and nobody came. And we rang the bell again and nobody came. And we waited a little longer and then somebody came, stuck their head around the corner and said, oh. And they came and opened the gate and said, come with me. And it looked like it was deserted. <coughs> but actually, it was up the main mosque. It was like a, actually, almost like an apartment building. But on the first floor, European-style first floor, so above ground floor, uh, it was all open. And, and there were lots of men and boys there. And they were doing one-on-one -on -one teaching of the Quran. I'm serious about my faith, you know. They're kneeling on either side of a little desk, the older man teaching the boy the Quran. So the Imam came out, nice enough guy, called them all together, and said, uh, Say what you have to say. So, in German and in English, and then in Turkish, we said what we were about, and then we read the apology, and it melted him. And he then wanted to make his response. And he stood up and he was, and he said, whoever had this idea must have had an epiphany. That is a meeting with God. Val, were you there on the day? Yeah. <clears throat> Remember it well, yeah. Yeah, he said, and he, and he said, you would have no way of knowing, but, but we as Muslims, also know that we have done wrong things in history. And he said, I'm part of a group of scholars that meet and we've been discussing what do we do about our sins in history? And you've shown us what we do. And he said, I am responsible for, I think he said 600 mosques, uh, Turkish mosques across Europe. And he said, I will get this message to every one of those mosques. And you know, he did. He did, because about two months later, 
One of those teams that did the whole walk all the way from Cologne down to Istanbul was in a park in Vienna, and they, they saw a crowd of people, and they got a little bit closer to find out what was going on, and they realized that they were reading out our apology to a crowd of, of Muslim, Turkish Muslims in Vienna. Amazing. Amazing. And so along the way, we met different Jewish groups and all, and, and, and that over that summer and into the autumn of, of 1996, the teams had no incidents. They, they walked and they prayed. You know, through the, through the European parts, there weren't a lot of Muslims or Jews to meet with. They met with a few Jewish groups and the odd Muslim uh, group. But as, as they got nearer uh, down to the Turkish border, it became more, uh, more Muslim. And, and there are quite a few in, in Bulgaria, and not many in Greece. The teams went both ways. But the thing is, while the teams were walking, Matthew and Kathy Nobles and I, Kathy's still on, on our team in Luton, um, we were trying to get permission to walk in Turkey. Because Turkey is a police state. It was especially then. I think it still is, but it's become more and more Islamist. But then it was a secular police state, and the police ran the country, really, and, and they had a name for ruthlessness. Um, there was uh, a film out just about that kind time called Midnight Express about the horrors of, uh, of somebody being charged with d drug running and, and being tortured in a Turkish jail. And so, you, you know, you didn't want to go to the Turkish jail. And interestingly, another group was walking in, in Turkey for another reason altogether uh, bef just before we got there. And, and the police seemed to be giving them latitude to do that, and they thought everything was going fine until one day they just swooped and with their truncheons, and they knocked everybody over the head, did quite a lot of damage, and carted them off to jail, and then deported them. And we thought, well, that would not be a good way for the uh, reconciliation walk to go. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we do? But the thing about a police state is nobody is willing to make, or is bold enough to make a decision because it's very much top-down. And what if you make a decision that your boss disagrees with? Then you, then you get fired. You're, you're in real trouble. So we could not get anybody to make a decision. And, and, and Matthew, with his good Turkish, had gone to people at all levels, police, governors, everybody. And, and finally, we were like two days before the team was arriving. And we thought, you know, we cannot go ahead unless we get a breakthrough. And we're praying together in, in a hotel in, in uh, Istanbul. And, and we felt like the only thing we do is go to the press. So we went to the top. We went to the president of the press association, of the journalist association. Um, and first time a lady ever was head of it. And she, she was the editor of this, of the broadsheet newspaper that is for the intelligentsia of Turkey. Not a big circulation, but all the important people read it. And her name was Leila. And we, we got an appointment with her, which was a miracle. But when we actually got to the appointment, it, it, it didn't look good because she was so busy. She's one of these people with like three phones on her desk and two assistants in and out and phones ringing. And, and, then, and she looked up and said, yes, can I help you? She had some English. <clears throat> and we, 
we started trying to explain, the phone would ring and she'd say, excuse me, and, and then she'd, she'd sort of half listen to us and her, her assistant would come in and say, somebody's waiting and she'd say, oh, just one moment, anything else? It was that kind of thing, you know? I, thought, I don't think she's understood one sentence of what was said. She's not paying attention. But I had the Turkish apology. We, we had them laminated. We did not give out pieces of paper with the apology because Christians sometimes give out tracts and it's not smart. It doesn't go down. So we, we just had the apologies that people could read. We would hold them and let them read it. But I, I was sitting across her desk, so I just, while she was on the phone, I just pushed the apology in front of her. And Leila Tavshinolu put the phone down and read this. And then the tears began to run down her cheeks. And we had her. We had her attention for the next hour. She was absolutely astonished. Somebody else said it later. It was a young guy who probably didn't have the wisdom to know what he shouldn't say. But he said what I think a lot of people would have said, but they were po polite. He said, this is wonderful. Christians never humble themselves. You know, when you humble yourself, people are not defensive. They feel like you're safe. You're not a threat. Remember that. You know, you can make a lot of cultural faux pas, errors, mistakes, do things that are considered to be rude. and You don't want to try, but, but you, there's all kinds of cultural norms when you go into a, a, a distant culture, you know, one that's very different. And you're going into some of those. And you can make a lot of mistakes. Even if you try hard to learn all you can, you'll make mistakes. But if you're humble, people will accept you. Layla wrote this whole thing up um, and came out the next day in the paper, just hours before the team arrived at the border. And it was a double spread. And when the team arrived, they were about 60 people, uh, a team that had gone through Rome and come across the, the, the from Brindisi to wherever it is, um, across the Adriatica, yeah, across the Adriatica, um, and they joined up with the other team that came down to Bulgaria. And there was a guy named John, you, you, may, you may know John and uh, John, John, John. Anyway, I'll come back to that. There, there are more than one or two Johns in the world. <coughs> and, and he was leading, and, and he was very nervous about going into Turkey. And he did not know, because we hadn't got, no cell phones, see? We hadn't got word to him that, that we got it in the paper. He didn't know that. So when he, and he arrives, dead scared. <laughs> and uh, the, the border guard, border officer, senior guy comes and says, come with me. He was sure he was off to prison, you know. <laughs> so they took him down a corridor and into a little room and said, stay here. And the guy disappeared. And then he came back a little while later with a newspaper and said, is this you? And John couldn't read it, but he could see my picture in it. And he had to admit, yes, it was us. <laughs> 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 John 
Presley. You know the name? <laughs> so, so <coughs> when he said, yes, it's us, the other guy said, wait here. And he disappeared for like two hours. <laughs> so John's sweating out all of his body fluids. <laughs> and, uh, and the guy comes back after two hours and says, come with me. And takes him out. And there's all the press and the TV cameras and, <coughs> and big wigs from local government. And they're all there saying, welcome to Turkey. Welcome to Turkey. And so it was all over the TV that night. And, and then the next three days, they walked into Istanbul uh, from the border to Istanbul. It was a three-day walk. And they found that mayors of cities from all across <coughs> Turkey would fly in to Istanbul just in those three days. And they would come with bouquets of flowers and find them on the road from the border to Istanbul, take taxis out and find them and say, please come to my city. My city is Erzincan. My city is Erzurum. My city is Antakya. Come to my city. It was amazing. And so it went on for the next two years. That people would come in. Kathy would orientate them in, in Istanbul. And they would take public transport. Turkey's got a fantastic system of little minibuses that run all over. They crisscross the every road in the country you can get public transport to inexpensively <coughs> on these little minibuses. Dangerous, but efficient. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and we crisscross. And, and, and I don't know, there were just so many ordinary encounters, but they were all amazing. <clears throat> because like, I, I remember one time being out in the middle of Cappadocia. You know, it's, it, it's an area where there's lots of open ground and not many houses. And, and you're walking down these roads. And over there is a, a little farm family, elderly man sitting under a tree. And a couple of women, maybe wives, I don't know, um, sitting uh, nearby. And, and, and we go over and, and show, not knowing for sure if he's literate, but show him the, the apology. And, and he is literate. And he gets it, and he melts, and he opens up, and he takes us to his village, and then they take you to the school, and then they take you to the mosque, and they, they read the apology over the loudspeaker on the minaret. I mean, you know, just the power of obeying Jesus, being humble, and taking responsibility for having misrepresented Jesus. And, you know, we, his people, have misrepresented him right down through history. And we need to apologize and say, I'm sorry. I've been part of a whole institutional thing that doesn't represent who Jesus is at all. And I hope I can live my life in such a way that it demonstrates who he is. Should I tell any more Turkish stories, do you think, Val or Mavi? We've kind of used up the time, I think. <clears throat> So there, there, there are a lot more stories from farther down. And I don't know if you're willing, we could do a, another storytelling evening when you have to have an evening class um, <laughs> in the next week or two, if that's possible. And, and we'll get, because there, there are more extraordinary stories from Syria, Lebanon. Syria. Yeah, from Jerusalem and Lebanon and, and Syria. Yeah, pretty amazing stories. The, the, to summarize what we learned, though, is that much of what I believed, and I think a lot of Christians believe, 
was um, unrealistic, overly simplistic, and just plain wrong, which is that the Holy Spirit is with us, but he's not with other people until we go there. And I think sometimes we try to get more missionaries to go by kind of making that making that picture um, more, well, we, we contrast where God is and where he's not. That's not true. The earth is the Lord's and everything and everybody in it. And, and we found again and again and again that God had already gone before us and he was doing things already. And when we could look for what he's doing, we, you'd find him in the most unusual places. And you, you'd find people... Well, I have to tell you just one, just one more story, okay? This one fits now. <clears throat> While we were in Istanbul, um, Matthew came to me. He said, you know, there's a pretty good-sized Jewish community here. And I said, really? In, in the middle of where the caliphate was and unbelievable. So he said, shall we meet with them? I said, yeah, let's do. And they agreed to meet with us. And they had, they had their equivalent of the Sanhedrin. You know, they, they had 12 men that if you put the length of their beards all together, it would have been about 15 feet, you know, <laughs> all white. And, and they, they received us very graciously and very kindly. And we talked to the children, the Apology it meant a great deal to them. They were, and 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 because they were open, and because again humility had created a common space, a, a, a safe space for them to talk. I felt I could ask them some questions that might have been out of place at other times. And so I said, uh, "How long has your community of Jewish people been here in Istanbul?" And and he said, uh, "Since 1492." What does that date do to you? Columbus. Columbus. But what was going on at the same time? Inquisition. Inquisition. So what had happened? Well, that community had begun because the church, the Christians, said, you have a choice. Die or leave. You get a week. So I, I thought, well, I'm going to ask one other, other very sensitive question. How, how would you describe um, your life as Jews <coughs> living uh, in, in a Muslim-majority nation? And he said, oh, we always thrive more under Muslims than under Christians. Isn't that heartbreaking? Isn't that heartbreaking? Now, we know that right now, with, with the rise of, Hez, uh, well, a bit of Hezbollah, but especially ISIS and Al-Qaeda, that, that Jewish enclaves in places like Tehran and in Turkey and in Libya and in Egypt and all have really suffered. But by and large, through the years since 1492, the Christian world has been very inhospitable 
I don't know if you've been following the news in the last little bit, but there is a rise of anti-Semitism in this country. It's in the, it's in the headlines every day now because the, the Labour Party has had uh, an increasing number of anti-Jewish sentiment um, and anti-Jewish statements and acts and works of art uh, in their ranks. And the leadership have been hesitant about calling it out. And so there's a lot of pressure on Jeremy Corbyn right now to deal with the, with the anti-Semitism in his party. But it's not confined to the Labour Party. There's a rise of anti-Semitism. And I've always said, since I've lived here, no, not here, but it is here. And I don't, there's no way to explain that except envy and demonic. Envy and demonic. And um, right across Europe and, and Eastern Europe, there's a rise of anti-Semitism again. And, and we, we need to be really alert to that and not take any of that on. And we need to not take on this hatred of Muslims. Okay? Our teams in this country that move in amongst Muslims find that they uh, are moving in amongst very hospitable, loving, responsive people. There are some extremists who are violent, but they are, they are a tiny percentage. And the Muslim community wants them rooted out as much as we do, because they know the damage they're doing to them. So let's not take on any of the Islamic stereotypes. Let's meet individuals, and if they, are, they happen to be, be Muslim, Let's be overjoyed that we get to meet somebody who's Muslim and find out more about them and what their background is and who their family is and what do they like to do and so on. And you'll meet them. You know, take a taxi to the station and you'll meet some Muslims. 